What is it? Uh, well, it's called a uh, randomizer, and it's fitted to the guidance systems and operates under a very complex scientific principle called potluck. No one knows where we're going. Not even the Black Guardian. Not even us. Hello, and welcome to the Randomizer Podcast, Episode 7. I am Tim. And I'm Charles. As usual, we have a spoiler warning for the latest Doctor Who episode, Can You Hear Me? And indeed, all Doctor Who that preceded it. We're also going to be discussing some of the themes around mental health in that episode, so just a sort of a wee warning for that. Uh, there's also a spoiler warning, too, that I'll be ruining Star Trek forevermore for everybody in Tangent of the Week. So, Can You Hear Me? What did you reckon, Charles? What? <laughs> Sorry. This was one that I quite enjoyed i think i was less kind of caught up in it than i was for praxius uh mm. i found it kind of a little lumpy which is a word i think i'm using a lot for this season mm. but i did i did like that the show talked about some real issues of mental health and didn't do it in a in too clumsy a way i think there was there were bits of clumsiness but generally it was i think a brave thing for the show to tackle and i think something that was done quite effectively i guess the one thing i would say is that it's sort of doing it all at once in one episode it's kind of like carving off a little moment for it and rather than sort of seeding the character development more gradually yeah. throughout the whole season it feels like okay characters develop now and then we'll get back to the fun and games it did feel like we were actually getting to know the companions a little bit especially Yaz yes, again who finally. is definitely in a sort of renaissance yeah. this season the actual way that issues were handled were I'd say on the whole reasonably good the first time I watched, I didn't get what Yaz's fear was. Me neither. But after re-watching, I realised that although it seemed like her fear was basically sitting on the road and being spoken to by a policeman, it was the fear that she'd left home and nobody seemed to give a shit. I definitely read it as running away rather than as anything to do with suicide, which was something I read online, people yeah. saying it. This is yes, having suicidal thoughts. And I do wonder if that's because it's considered dangerous to depict suicidal methodology. Having worked with Mind, the charity, to mm. develop the episode, it could well be that the decision was made to abstract what Yas was doing. Yeah, yeah. And maybe being generous to what was otherwise just a bit of a sort of fuzzy crisis, if you like. Uh, played out and the fact that her sister had called the police and you know it proved that people cared about her and I thought that was quite well done it was nice her visiting the police officer at the end I suppose it was a little bit smaltzy but it was a genuinely nice sequence Ryan on the other hand just felt a bit weird that know? was definitely ill-defined wasn't yeah, it yeah was I mean general future terror yeah and, and you know he's not going to be there you it know, sort of the feels like comes. Ryan's a spent force since he's had his episode yeah. with his dad now it's such yeah. a shame he's just been given nothing else to do except the occasional moment of flirtation with somebody he bumps into yeah I totally agree I think he's basically just been sidelined completely yeah it's a shame Graham's I thought it was pretty badly handled the Doctor being socially awkward seemed to make a little bit of a joke out of it I, I know that wasn't the intention I know they were obviously trying to do something a little bit more serious I totally read it the other way because I, I have a, an autistic son and so I'm aware of him telling you things in a way which feel really wrong but are actually communicative and it's almost like a different language you have to learn and so what I saw was the doctor being unable to help in the moment but being able to at least articulate why which in the past you'd mentioned that maybe she could have scanned him with a sonic or done some sort of distraction mm. activity but what she did instead was say I'm going to do this distraction activity I hear you back to the show title but I can't help you at the moment and I, I think the the writing in that moment could have been stronger it was it was tonally a bit ambiguous you know it was sort of mm. I don't think it was it definitely wasn't played for laughs but it had a sort of oddness and a, a weirdness to it that meant it wasn't clear cut but what I did see for the first time ever was a depiction of somebody genuinely trying their best but articulating their inability to help at the moment the doctor's a lot more empathic than that I know he can be brusque and abrasive but usually can be more sort of empathic when someone is hurt for example in Rebel Flesh Cleaves. She had the brain condition and the doctor sort of, you know, had sorted it out. My point is that within the world of Doctor Who, if we're taking this as a thing, really and truly, there's going to be a cure, a complete cure for cancer. Well, they could be if they wanted to. Yeah. I always thought that 
bringing Graham's cancer back would be an amazing dramatic thing for the show. You could have a lot of good drama out of that. But the problem with that is that bringing something like that into Doctor Who is bringing the real world in. You've got people that suffer and for the Doctor then to sort of say, oh well, I'll just take you to Planet Blob that has a cure. The space hospital, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I think this is what this episode's doing. It's putting a toe in the waters of real mm. events, as it did with Rosa, you know, very skillfully, I think it's it the the series under Chibnall is trying to engage with things that are current and pressing and real and that's it's tricky territory and I think the show's a little clumsy with it often but I kind of applaud the effort one thing I want to jump back on is you're talking about you know the doctor in Rebel Flesh this is a different person now and I think it's absolutely valid that this iteration of the doctor can have the social awkwardness that she talks about however this sticks out like a sore thumb because there hasn't been anything really done with it before it sort of comes out of the blue and that's where mm. i think it's lumpy yeah. you know I, th- I think there's a reading of it which is fine and interesting for the reasons i talked about but yeah. actually because uh, like a lot of things there's these little blobs of this and blobs of that mm. and whether that's sort of environmental issue or whether it's to do with something like this element of the doctor's character yeah it's all great in itself, but the problem is it comes along like road bumps. I think that's what the problem is. Mm-hmm. If it had been established well before that, yeah, that you yeah. know she had difficulty with this sort of thing, then fine. Don't mind the subject being broached. I just want it to be handled well. That's the sort of trouble is that the realer the issues, if you like, the more that the sci-fi trappings of the show begin to get in the way mm. or begin to cheapen your discussion of that issue. I think we, we all felt that about the end of Orphan 55. <laughs> Yeah, And we definitely can see that sort of danger here. However, I would give credit to the programme makers here because I think this episode in particular it introduced mental health in mm. an interesting way without it ever being kind of a soapbox moment. Yeah, And I, I was very pleased with the, the sort of resolution of the thread of Ryan and his friend. I thought for a moment that that scene together they had as things were wrapping up, it was all going to be like, oh, uh, unspoken, well, mm. I'm a man, I'm not going to seek any help with yeah. my mental health. And actually then he does, and that was one wonderful to see. I was pleased with that. I mean, I myself have uh, some mental health issues and I've found that talking uh, really does help and I think that anybody out there that's listening that does maybe themselves have those sort of issues, trust me, talking is always a good way to alleviate and help. So you're not alone, basically. So I think we should talk about the Phantom Hand. Basically, more or less the start of the episode when Graham is playing poker with his friends. He's talking away and you see a a top shot of the table and you see Graham and his two friends at the left and the right of him and at the top of the table there's a hand comes out and we basically never reference that person, see that person or hear that person. Possibly an editing mistake. It really fucking weirded me out for the whole episode. I think we'd have more fun than an editing mistake. This has got to be, uh, I don't know, Peter Capaldi or something. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely another Doctor or something. This is... This is the 14th Doctor checking up on Graham. Absolutely. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who knows? Um, it's <laughs> it's almost definitely just an odd editing mistake. They cast three friends for Graham and then only two of them had any lines. So in the edits, the fourth friend was reduced to just a mere hand wave. Yeah. But I didn't notice it at all. And it is, it's, it's rather glorious. It's sort of like the stormtrooper banging his helmet in Star yeah. Wars. I'm now never going to unsee that. No, no, definitely. I'll never be able to watch that episode without seeing that. But I just find it so bizarre even mm. as I say it must be an editing thing but yeah. I just don't even see the point they could have just taken the shot of the overhead out unless it's not a fourth actor but actually just somebody from the production staff could have been placing mm. the cup that's on the table and you know it could be a, an out and out mistake but yeah the phantom hand is, is something yeah. we would like to start think, as a conspiracy in Doctor oh, Who it I, could I, be the Starbucks cup out of Game of Thrones for Doctor it Who it could be or that could have been the timeless child that was the timeless child it was the bodiless child <laughs> Eldrad, it's the Hand of Fear. That's what we'll call it, the Phantom Hand of Fear. Phantom Hand of Fear. (laughs) That's the title for the episode. The Timeless Phantom Hand of Fear. In general, good episode, bit clunky, really interesting, some good points made. Admittedly made better in Vincent and the Doctor, I would say. Mm -hmm. And also you had the God Complex sort of doing the nightmares thing. Yeah. 
again, the writing just overstates certain points. I've said this before mm. about the way that Whitaker's Doctor monologues is a little clumsy and a little mm. exposition-y. Yeah. And I think it's just not done with the skill that I would hope for. The other thing would be the two immortals. Yeah. Now, I really liked them. I mm-hmm. thought the guy was great. You didn't really see or hear much of the woman, but she was pretty good anyway. Yeah, so the woman came along a bit like the Destroyer, sort of radiating power and evil and then sort of being defeated rather easily in the end. And if only the immortals had had better handcuffs. When Jodie's tied up with her handcuffs mm-hmm. and the sonic screwdrivers in her box <laughs> pocket and she sort of manages to sort of just do like a wiggle and the sonic screwdriver literally it was a bit springboards yeah. up towards her hand. Oh, so that the years was... of hula hooping paying off. Yeah, I mean that was just weird. To be honest, thumbs up because that's a bit of nonsense that I sometimes quite like. Getting back to the actual immortals, we name check the Eternals, mm-hmm. the Celestial Toymaker and the, the Black and White Guardian. Yeah. Now that was wonderful. My fan thing came on. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Pulling a face. Yeah. For the benefit of the tape. But then, oh no, we're we're some other ones. And I just thought, why not just say we're the guardians or the eternals or this is on message, isn't it? it? It's like we resemble these things you've seen before, but we're not quite the same. I mean that that is the racknot, that is our dregs, you know, this is definitely on message for this season. There could be a point to this. Parallel universes. Yeah. I mean it would be very clever, but the problem is that it's kind of annoying until you get the payoff yeah. and I don't know if that's good enough. I, I could see some sort of reading that this is a sort of echo of the Doctor's true universe and that kind of can, mm. can fold in an explanation for Ruth there but it also feels like that cheapens everything else not yeah. least Ruth as well. I think I'd be disappointed if, if it did go down that road it also feels more like the kind of feverish imagining of fans like us who would want yeah. it all to tie up neatly. I mean I, I totally agree that the problem with this sort of thing is that when you start creating theories about it it's going to be so complex that it's not something that's ever going to really happen because the simplest explanation is always the best explanation. Occam's razor yeah Yeah. and that is that this is just quite a derivative era. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely (laughs) I had this sort of little journey with the title which is very obvious in retrospect but at first I thought well there's only that little bit right at the beginning which Mm. references the title so why was it called that and then of course reflecting on the themes of mental health it seems that it's referencing more the idea of people wanting to be listened to and heard. Gloriously, I found a list online of Doctor Who episodes with punctuation in the title because this is the first episode of Doctor Who to have a question mark in the title. A rather wonderful fact. And so there was a, a list of other punctuated episode titles on Twitter. Most of them are apostrophes, of course. I kind of like that. You have something slightly mediocre, but let's make it a first by shoving <laughs> something. We're <laughs> breaking new ground. Yeah. Well, I'm holding out for an ampersand, or if we're very lucky, an interrobang. So, can you hear me? That was our thoughts on that disembodied fingers and perhaps a disembodied hand and a return of grace and a return of grace <laughs> yep yeah that we didn't even talk about <laughs> i was so throwaway really yeah. isn't it yeah. that's more of the nightmare i think for graham mm-hmm. than in some ways the cancer oh, totally just that you can't move on it's the same as in it takes you away this fantasy of grace yeah. and this ghost when you lose someone and you you grieve and you go through that process of acceptance etc i mean he's sort of trying to go through that process but he keeps having these little road bumps with yeah. her reappearing i noticed that in um korea i believe they've got a project going with uh, creating a digital avatar of a dead person mm. for virtual reality they created this one of this little girl she had a disease and she was dying apparently it seemed to help the mum but it's like if that option came to you would you want to take it i'm sort of torn i think i possibly would mm. because when you lose someone you know you you think that's it i'll, I'll never see them again but if you've got that opportunity even if it's that false opportunity yeah it's very, very tantalizing i think so and science fiction has explored that issue in, in several occasions like i'm trying to think of which particular gene roddenberry earth final conflict right had um the aliens that were stealthily invading had a technology where you could access your memories yeah and literally like a vr device go back anywhere in your memories the main character's wife had died so he could go back to moments and so on it ties into themes of immortality i mean 
mean, so we have the Immortals in this episode, and I mentioned the book by Neil Stevenson, Fall or Dodge in Hell, a while back, and that has that sort of digital archiving of human consciousnesses as a theme. So there, it ties in a lot to strong sci-fi themes. Black Mirror did San Junipero. That's the one. Digital Afterlife. Yes. It's in the cloud. It's literally like, you know, screaming out, this is digital heaven, maybe death in heaven in Doctor Who. Yes. Or testimony in the twice one at a time. I think it's an interesting thing for science fiction to tackle Mm. now as we begin to stumble into that idea Mm. like this Korean project of digital archiving. We don't have rules or even kind of protocols or kind of even history Mm. of how to deal with that sort of grey area in terms of dealing with death. There's a wonderful webcomic called XKCD, which is basically stick figures, but it's also beautifully funny and profound often. And the author uh, has a side project called What If, where he tries Mm. to answer silly questions with scientific rigor. It's glorious. Go and look it up. He does one called Facebook of the Dead, which talks about what happens to the people's Facebook pages after they die. It's a digital legacy. Yeah. The question that prompts that is, when will dead people on Facebook outnumber living people? And he tries to work that out. Mm. And it's a really interesting sort of thought experiment, but also there are things like that Facebook digital legacy thing happening now. And societally, we're beginning to have to ask ourselves the questions of the stuff that we leave behind, especially when it's digital archives, when it's Mm. images of us, when it's our voice, recordings, all of these things. This ties also into the debate around recreating actors, as they did for the Star Wars films, with Carrie Fisher and Peter Cushing, for example. I think it was Craig Hinton, the Doctor Who author, that came up with the title of Synthespians. <laughs> you know, are we emotionally ready for this sort of, you know, new way of, of looking at mm. death? Oh, clearly not. I mean, mm. it's clearly something in its infancy and in that we have to sort of stumble around and make a lot of mistakes in, but it's a fascinating topic and Definitely. Um, one worth returning to. We must ask the Doctor. I think this will lead us into a question for Dr Schultz rather nicely. Welcome, Dr Schultz. Now, this week I wanted to ask about the idea of immortality because the show has had many immortal characters as mentioned in this episode. I'm vaguely aware that some creatures, certain worms or certain protozoa can be effectively immortal, but what are the kind of prospects for immortality for human beings? Is, Is it something that we could look at in the future? Well, of course, this is completely implausible. Well, thank you, Dr. Schultz. Again, you never fail to surprise me with the way you get right to the heart of the issue there. Thank you. You know that second opinion you were talking about? Yeah, I think we need to ask Dr. Leg. All these corridors look the same to me. So we've been running down corridors silently for a couple of episodes, but I have arrived at a junction where I'm able to talk about Talon's Wing Chang, which yeah. I've finished watching. It's a six-parter and very well regarded as a story, considered a classic. It has nowadays, of course, the screamingly difficult issue of the fact that there's an actor made up to be a Chinese person who is not Chinese. Beyond just that, there's also peppered through the script, having just watched it with that in my mind, are a lot of kind of just really casual nasty slurs there's a talk of the little men and a lot of talk of yellow and sometimes that's put strongly in the mouth of the characters themselves so Lee Seng Chang has a few gags which sort of mock the people who are treating him differently because he's Chinese by and large the show has this sort of uncomfortable casualness with which it disperses sort of epithets I do agree the point is like you say that would never be done now and no one is excusing it Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't want to say this bloody line. It, it was, was a different time. time. The point of that statement is that every single TV show that was casting her would do the same thing. It was considered the norm in that sense. So I don't think we can really blame the BBC too much. But the other thing we've also got to consider is it was set in Victorian the times. Victorian times, so the racism wouldn't even have been a thing then. So if you're doing something authentic or trying to at least allude to something authentic, you know, these things would tend to get mentioned. Chinese were deplorably treated in Victorian times in America, for example. I mean, look how many Chinese people died making railroads. You've talked about this before, yeah. not on the podcast, but the journey that you take from a situation of oppression mm. to something that's better mm. has along the road lots of stepping stones. Yeah. We get from A to B to C, but when we eventually get to D, which is hopefully a more enlightened viewpoint, 
if you ignore how you got there, it's not honouring what's went before, you know, the people that have sort of fought to get there. We have this kind of vanity of the present. You say A to B to C to D, this does rather beg the question of the rest of the alphabet, because here we are now in era D, and we think D's great, it's the pinnacle, yeah. and, you know, we've sorted out all societal problems. Of course we haven't. There's of course a, not. There's a whole alphabet in front of us. Any progress is a journey, mm-hmm. and where we are now, we're still on that journey. And there's something about the lessons of history as well, yeah. I think. None of it to excuse the, the BBC's depiction, but it is to understand it. And I think, yes, the show's set in the Victorian era, but I don't get the impression the script is knowingly peppered with racial epithets because that gives it Victorian authenticity. I think that's just the writing of the time. And that is uncomfortable because that's relatively recent, you know. Mm. We would love to think that most of that racism was back in Victorian time, but no, it's, you know, 40, 50 years ago only. That whole thing acknowledged, let's move on and talk about the actual story, because it's glorious in many, 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 many ways. The the Doctor and Leela's relationship continues to grow. This sort of settles into the kind of Eliza Doolittle thing, especially given the period that she was set in. Leela's ferocity and her fish-out-of-water nature Mm. is in sharp relief in Victorian era you have glorious scenes of her learning some table manners and um, I just love the moment where she's in Lightfoot's house and she picks up the The, leg of meat absolutely and he picks up a plate and looks at her munching straight into this haunch and then very beautifully, beautifully just picks up a leg of meat of his own and he sort of so as not to embarrass his guest it's it's just lovely and you just I think you fall in love with Lightfoot at that point oh absolutely you just see what a gentleman he is and what kind and open minded man he absolutely. is absolutely well. I mean he yeah. is Lightfoot is an enlightened Victorian but of course that's what Robert Holmes's strength is he mm. always really invests these characters with a sort of uniqueness and then of course he doubles him up with Henry Gordon Jago who is the embodiment of Victorian entrepreneurship and sort of bombacity of the theatre you know this whole um, good old day shtick he's larger than life and he's got a flowery turn of phrase loves his alliteration I think in the very first scene he was like I'd have propelled him onto the pavement with a punt up the posterior yeah I mean it's absolutely beautiful you know it's it's such a sort of overblown performance but it's handled so well and when they both get together not until episode 5 I know it's amazing amazing. of course Big Finish have had many Jago and Lightfoot adventures because of course there is a gap in the market oh now the gap this is brilliant (laughs) (laughs) we're going to need a swear jar for you making that Big Finish joke I have listened to two sets of the Jago and Lightfoot adventures. Mm. They're directed by uh, Lisa Borman, who is a big Finnish regular, plays Bernice Summerfield in many of those adventures. She appears in them as well. And so it's a lovely little bubble universe within Mm. the Doctor Who canon that Jago and Lightfoot carry on as compatriots in fighting crime and having misadventures. And and they're just such great characters. I I work in theatre, so I love all the scenes backstage Mm. and understage. And the chase, the Phantom of the Opera style chase through the flying gallery and when the Doctor escapes by jumping down a curtain. It's just great fun. It is beautiful. And of course, it's a sort of marriage made in heaven this sort of story for Doctor Who but also the BBC tackling it Mm, because costume drama is what the BBC always excels at so they have an absolute ball with this one it looks so realistic yes you know I mean the the scenes by the Thames or the old crone she's called a ghoul in the credits oh god yeah Yeah, ghoul and you've got the uh, saliva acting going on with her (laughs) it is properly sort of you know like a Sunday night drama. It's glorious. There's one infamous moment where the Doctor walks down the street past a very large bale of hay under which is a modern car which apparently the owner had refused to move so the BBC <laughs> just covered it with hay. <laughs> Good for them. It's a very unusual story for Doctor Who in a lot of ways because we, we skirt around drugs. Yes. We skirt around prostitution. Remember when Chang gets the woman? She's a lady of the night. You yeah. Know, that is the sort of implication. I know it's not sort of overt, but I mean, it's pretty obvious that that's what the implication is. Well, that's is. skillfully done. There's, yeah, I mean, we're absolutely. talking about the show dipping into the messiness and the, the sort of difficulties of the real world, and mm. so the reality of Victorian London was prostitution and yeah, drugs. of course. And God, probably now as well, but <laughs> without tidying it away and pretending it's what it's not, but also without necessarily taking the programme down a road mm. that's too adult for that type of drama. Well, again, s- sex work is something that societally we still have a lot of stuff to work out about. 
it. Mm. For those who haven't watched Talon's Wenchang, I don't really want to go into too much and spoil it. Just go and watch it. It is a great mm. era of Doctor Who. We're hard on the heels of Robots of Death. The next episode is Horror of Fang Rock, oh, which is another wonderfully atmospheric and creepy story. This is the high point of the series' history in many, many ways. Why don't you challenge someone else? Anyone. As you know, I have challenged Chaz to watch The Mutants, and there's been a various series of mishaps and, frankly, excuses, but I know, mate, I know in my heart now that you've watched it, so... I decided that, considering all the problems I'd had previously, I would come up, as you know, I have a very comfortable little office stroke sort of uh, toy, room. toy room yeah and i thought right i'll settle down sit in front of the computer so i'm sitting there i poured my dr pepper basically unfortunately i spilt the dr pepper it sort of went all over the keyboard and the computer and there was a sort of giant sort of flash and the next thing i know my computer had sort of uh, veered onto the dark web to the Silk Road. Basically, what happened is I just heard this crash downstairs, ran down to find some uh, undercover policemen uh, who were arresting me for sort of drug trafficking. Um, and it took almost a week to uh, explain myself. Bloody so, hell. unfortunately, I wasn't able to watch it. Oh, well, that's completely understandable. I mean, this is probably the worst thing that could happen. Could it have been affected by tangential deviation coming out of the warp ellipse? So tangent of the week, I wanted to talk about something I've spotted in Star Trek and I apologise because this will ruin the whole series for you. It's not a spoiler for anything, it's just a thing I've spotted. So Star Trek has many examples of wonderful futuristic technology from the transporters to the warp drives, but I think the pinnacle of the technology in Star Trek must be the psychic doors because not only do these doors notice that you're walking up to them and open smoothly with a shh when you need to leave a room, and indeed enter a room, they also know if you've still got a line to deliver. <laughs> because if you're going to turn back and say one more thing before you leave the room, they won't open. It's amazing. That is amazing technology. It really is. They've managed to combine, you know, automatic doors with exposition. I know. It's just, they're narratively aware doors. That's, wow. That is... You know, so basically, are they a new life form in Star Trek? I don't know. It could be Douglas Adams' kind of um, serious cybernetics corporation doors yeah. that are happy I, to open for you. Could you imagine the episode Measure of a Man where, for example, <laughs> um, <laughs> Picard defends data, you know, his right to, to exist. I call my first witness. Witness the door. <laughs> you know, he's he's basically there, he's defending the door's right to open and there would goes, be an open and shut case. <laughs> Think of the alternative. You'd be standing there in the doorway, in delivering door. your dramatic for parting shot, and the door would be like <laughs> I think it's a wonderful example of the sort of the way that you have to break naturalism just to not completely trash your drama. <laughs> I love it. That's absolutely brilliant. A man is the sum of his memories, you know, a Time Lord even more so. It is time for Your Cheating Memory, which is the part of the show where we re-watch an old episode that we've chosen at random. And last time we chose Cold War. And I've got to say, after watching something which is Doctor Who the height of its game, like Time Lash, last time, it has been just like coming back down to Earth with a bump to have to watch something so badly thrown together, so cheap, so poorly acted... Oh, hang on, no. Yeah. Cold War's great. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It's uh, Return of the Ice Warriors. Yeah. Brilliant. It's set on a Russian submarine during mm-hmm. the Cold War. I just did there. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, And also, it got me thinking when I was watching it, this must be one of the most uncomfortable episodes to film. Oh, they're dripping wet the whole time. They are. It is beautifully done the effects in this I mean it really mm. looks you know I'm I'm sort of watching it thinking god I'm watching Doctor Who's version of The Hunt for Red October yeah the CG was it CG in the summary? it's hard to I tell don't, I don't know so I think it might be a model I mean the outer and interior shots and everything I mean it mm. really looks good yeah you know? it's a great it looking really, episode and I will say I mean I'm not the biggest fan of Mark Gates I don't dislike him or mm-hmm. anything I'm not his biggest fan of his Doctor Who stuff but I would say this is definitely one of his better ones. Yeah, I agree totally. Mm. It's it's tightly written. Mm. And, uh, the enemy is fierce, but the mm. resolution is that very lovely Doctor Who thing of finding a 
a way out of the seeming impossible situation. Yeah, and the much. Doctor appealing to the better nature of the antagonist. Yeah, I mean, I like that. That's the Doctor for me. Mm-hmm. The Doctor who talks enemies down. It's yeah. like the scene in uh, Remembrance at the end when the Doctor literally talks the Black Dalek into self-destruct. For this one, the, the Ice Warrior looks very good, very imposing, mm, the, the very armour. The CG, when it's out of the suit... It's just on the right side of the line for me. It's yeah. sort of very obviously CG, but the character design does justice to yeah. to the inner ice warrior. I think I liked it more this time. It felt a bit exposed the first time I saw the episode, I think. Yeah, possible. I've watched it quite a few times now. And, um, yes, in the last week. Yeah, more or less. So the idea that it was a suit for me actually sits quite well. I thought the redesign of the ice warrior suit was absolutely fantastic. Mm. I mean, it's a really big battle tank felt as strong. Well. Yeah. You know, it really did and it felt like a threat and it didn't it, feel like a, a complete redesign the way that say the Cybermen yeah, had or absolutely. even the Silurians very recognisable as an Ice Warrior Yeah, I thought the character Skaldak wonderful but see the Ice Warriors are an interesting race in Doctor Who because they've been villains mm-hmm. and they've been they've allies been Allies, yeah. you know was... they're not always the villains I don't know if this fits a... into the continuity neatly enough but is this the moment where that changes for them well yeah because um, if you remember the Peladon stories, for example, are um, far future, far future, yeah. and the first one, the Ice Warriors, Seeds of Death. So we have them twice as villains, and then yeah. they appear with John Pertwee. Yeah, and we think we're the villains, but they're not. Yeah. Things that struck me about this episode: so the Ice Warrior sounds like the Predator. Mm-hmm. There's that kind of rattly sound, which I think must be deliberate, and it's. Yeah. Very creepy. In terms of the cast, we talked about David Warner mm. and we talked about Liam Cunningham. I was right, it was Tobias Menzies as the second in command. Who was also in Game of Thrones as Sir Edmure Tully. I think everybody's been in Game of Thrones, haven't yeah. they? Yeah, Tobias is a, a fantastic actor who I've, I've seen him on stage a couple of times as well. And I think he's not got so much to do in this role, but he does great things with what he's got. Mm. You know, he has that kind of scene with the ice where he's got its claw yeah. on his face. And I think he's playing that really beautifully, trying to keep his nerve and yet still sort of seeing this common cause. You basically got him and Liam Cunningham, who are sort of two sides of the same coin. Liam Cunningham wants to sort of... Uh, he wants... He, he wants to pursue a peace he believes or he's more open to believing that you know the West's intention aren't always to destroy whereas Tobias uh, Menzies is that sort of typical Russian villain from the 80s who sort of you know all is a lie everything the West spouts is a lie basically his ultimate goal is to pursue war and conquest it doesn't feel that caricatured though I think I think he's just a soldier doing his job yeah Absolutely, and he does play it, but I mean, that's the, I think that's the basic impetus mm-hmm. of the character. Somewhat in the mix, you have David Warner, who's a sort of slight outsider because he's the scientist on board, mm. and so he has this sort of license to be the maverick and stumble in with his yeah. Ultravox playing <laughs> his headset. And he has played a doctor in yeah, the of Unbound course he has. Yep. Big Finish series. He's, you know, I'm a great fan. Another of... great bit of design the Martian ship at the end. Mm. Looks amazing. Very good. I think just generally a, a really solid episode. It is very solid. It's a very well-designed episode, mm. a very well-directed episode. Yeah. Everything in this one is on point. But yet, this is an average story. It's weird, isn't it? In a really, I mean, a really, really good season. But how amazing is that that, that was, at the time, considered to be like an average story? I wonder if part of that is because it's not doing anything huge in terms of character mm. arc or anything. Probably, it's yeah. just quite self-contained I mean, that way. I can't say anything else, really, other than praise it. I think yeah, it's a yeah. great, great story. But it is no time lash. No, no, of course. I, I mean, mean, you know, nothing nothing, nothing equals the pinnacle of Time Lash. No, nothing compares to Time Lash. So it's been seven hours and 15 days since we watched that. <laughs> so it's time to choose another story. Look, when I give the word, press the button. The big one? Yes, maybe it works in conjunction with the others. All right, well, let's try and find out. Now, what could it be? It's the Beast oh, Below. come on. Smith. 
I mean, you know, I love Matt Smith, but for fuck's sake, this thing is in love with Matt Smith. This is a, a Matt Smith bias. But beast below it is, we are slaves to the randomizer. Wow. So I so want to watch some cl- more classic. <laughs> it'll come. It'll come. Eventually, we'll have watched all the Matt Smith again. <laughs> yeah, I think I think once we finished on Matt Smith, it'll probably go back to Matt Smith. <laughs> <laughs> it's slightly disappointing, and that's nothing to do with the story. Yeah, I've actually watched it really recently a, as well. It's a fun look. I mean, you know, I suppose if we were going from Matt Smith, the Day of the Doctor or the Eleventh Hour would have been. Woo! Yeah, you know this is again. This is a a nice, fun little story. Not the best. It's certainly average. And I technically, I mean, this is Stephen Moffat's first average Doctor Who story in a while. Again, given the high bar that's yeah, it. because before that he was guest writer, usually near the high point of the season. Yeah, and yeah. then he writes the eleventh hour, which is possibly one of the greatest Doctor mm-hmm. intro stories of all time. And then you've got this one. Nothing wrong with the story, but it's like this is sort of lower scale for him. That's what's interesting about it. There's a shape of story that this fits into. We've talked previously about uh, rings. Of Akaten. Hmm. We've talked about the end of the world when it's the companion, the new companion's first trip hmm. after the meeting episode. Yeah. Yeah, and so the episode has a kind of slightly less glamorous role. It hmm. has to sort of cement that character and give them that experience. We learn about them more through yeah. how they react to what they see. The Beast Below is it's a kind of utterly stupid idea, which is gloriously funny yeah. and silly of the whole of the British Isles being packed <laughs> onto one spaceship. And, and apparently Scotland uh, went on their own way. Oh yeah, that throwaway line is quite good fun. But the resolution of the episode with the Star Whale, I mentioned it last time about her speech. Oh yeah, about yeah You're very old and you're very kind. And mm. it's a lovely kind of taking of the reins and yeah. a kind of proving of herself yeah, as well. absolutely. Having had that moment of Amy having decided what the Doctor should do and what she shouldn't and him shouting at her about it even though she doesn't remember doing it. I think also when you mention that very overly I think that's Stephen Moffat reaffirming his mission statement mm-hmm. in Doctor Who. Totally. You know, sort of the last of his era mm. was always be kind. At this stage this is his Doctor. He's, he's mm. just setting out. He's new. Yeah. And so it's. I think the episode's very strong but in that kind of quieter way that makes it less glamorous than mm. some of what's around it. Oh, yeah. It's a nice, nice little story, and I am looking forward to watching it. Predictable as ever, Doctor. Doctor. So it's time for Doctor by Doctor. Now we are randomly selecting a Doctor and discussing their era. Simple as that. Now we're our second time drawing from the box of bits of paper. I'm going to take it this time. Yep, that sound effect doesn't get any less convincing. Okay, and I have in my hand number seven. Oh, sweet! Wow. So Sylvester. Well. This is when I would say Doctor Who became really interesting again. I thought McCoy sort of started off doing his default. He wasn't really sure of how to play the character, so mm. he was doing the screwball, bumbling about, pratfalls and stuff, which was his staple anyway. When Andrew Cartmill had come on board, he'd inherited previous scripts, so he had to sort of work with what he had. But it was obvious by even the start of the second season that Cartmel had a plan or the master plan as it became known. McCoy was interested in making the Doctor more mysterious. We changed the companion and we got the wonderful Sophie Aldred playing a companion that had never been seen before. Yeah. You know, she felt a lot more real. Admittedly, not many people run about with explosives. Well, they didn't then. <laughs> At the time, it really felt fresh, you know? Yes, it And did. when we got to season 25 specifically, it felt like the show had a new found spring in its step. For me, the only story in that season that is a clunk is Silver Nemesis. I vehemently dislike that story. Yeah, I'm not uh, too fond of it. I don't like Kevin Clark. Mm-hmm. Um, his interviews just pissed me off royally and so forth. I mean, we've got Remembrance, which reintroduces the Daleks in yeah. one of the best Dalek stories ever made. We've got Great Show in the Galaxy. Wonderful 
wonderful story. Had its flaws, for sure. Yeah, of course it does. I mean, every Doctor Who story has its flaws. You can't beat it down for lack of imagination, that's for sure. Oh, I can try. Oh, I'm sure you will. We're reversing our roles now. I'm going to be the optimist. <laughs> and cop, you're, bad cop. And yeah, you're going to be the oh, negative no, I just one. can't let Greatest Show slide by without talking about the horrendously misconceived Quiz Kid. And it's a less than some of its parts thing as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, there was a beautifully cutting description uh, because they had an asbestos crisis and had to film it in a tent. I think this is the discontinuity guide described that as leading to a more atmospheric episode than had ever been planned. Creepy clowns were great. Oh, yeah. For sure. Ace was fine, but Captain Cook was just irritating. Yeah. Mags was kind of just waiting to do her werewolf bit and then... I think that was just the thing of really those sort of elements, some of them are introduced just to get some sort of threat of monster or yeah. something in Doctor Who. I mean, you look at, say, Talons with a rat. You yeah, know, yeah. the rat's there literally to give us some sort of, you know, I mean, it's awful, but whatever. Or the magma beast in Caves of mm. I mean, it wasn't needed, but it's there mainly because JNT thinks she needs some sort of monstrous presence. Well, you agree with them, though. So it's your criticism of Praxia. Yes, yes, but uh, I agree with it if it's done well. <laughs> OK. Well, I, mean, I don't no, think anybody I mean, says, oh, let's do it badly. Fair, be fair. Like, we were talking about the space prawn last week. Yeah. You know, yes, it looks awful, but it's something to talk with. The magma beast isn't something to talk with. The but they never has, tried, poor thing. The Doctor has Sheriff's Jack to, to talk, talk with, with. so that's why the mm-hmm. magma beast okay. unnecessary. Yeah. Ian Reddington as chief clown yeah. is spellbinding. Well, he steals the show. I think. He really is, you know. And this story has one of my favourite lines in the entire McCoy era. The Doctor's saying something to this. He goes, "Oh, you're just an aging hippie professor." He goes, "Oh yeah, well, you may have a point." I think Happiness Patrol is a really strong story oh, God, as yeah. well. It's a political satire. Absolutely. And um, the Doctor and brings down a regime overnight. was pretty bloody obvious. The Helena was Thatcher. And it gets mentioned, you know, years later in a mm. Newsday interview. Painting the TARDIS pink and having yeah. the, the mandatory happiness thing was a, just a really... Mm. Oh, lovely yeah. creepy idea the Candyman was a great monster design mm. but obviously tread too close to the copyrighted Bertie Bassett character <laughs> the season begins to take shape we've skipped entirely over season 20 to be honest. <laughs> I know that's season not 20. really fair is it well I mean Time and the Rani for me this represents the first time I was a fan and watching the show oh, really? because I discovered kind of other people we lived in Aberdeen at that point <laughs> who were Doctor Who fans and I remember <laughs> sitting around and discussing it and that there <sighs> was a sea change from me in terms of how I experienced the program because suddenly it was all about what other people thought about it. Oh my god, of all stories to sort of become a, a sort of the fan as it were. On. Well, I'm going to say something shockingly controversial You're going to, you like it. I don't like it, I just don't hate it. It's just, you know, for me it was just another episode of Doctor Who and then there was all this reaction to it yeah. which baffled me as in my young naive self. I don't hate it. I mean, there are bits in it that are sort of, you know, fun. I love McCoy in it. I think he's sort of, you know, he's basically just, uh, he's he's working on instinct. He's falling back in this particular until one. his character settles. And, of course, Kate O'Mara is quite funny in it, you know. The Bonnie sort of, Langford impression is just, it's one of those things that, I can't quite believe they're doing it, but yeah. she carries it off very well. It is rather, it is rather good. And it's um, that suspension of disbelief needed that that would fool the Doctor. Mm. He's so befuddled. I don't know, I quite like the fact that they play the moment of him working it out and that sort of becomes him sort of taking control of the plot a little bit. Yeah. The Tetraps were a decent monster, I thought. They're, they're okay, there's nothing wrong with them. In general, it's not bad. You know, there's a lot of good parts to it. Again, it's less than some of its parts. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, it's got some pretty decent effects, you know, for the time. Pretty decent sort of, you know, costumes and stuff. I thought the bubble traps were quite horrific. Oh, yeah, I mean, I mean they were good. I've always slightly been freaked out by anything that reduces you to a skeleton. So yeah. I remember when I saw Star Wars quite young, I was quite uh-huh. horrified by the corpses of uh, Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru. Yeah. It's, it's by no means a great story, but <laughs> I just think it, it's sort of having to do that very difficult job of setting up a new Doctor. And Again. It's yeah. one of the weaker ones, especially given the fact that Colin Baker wasn't there to do a regeneration. Yeah, that was... You, you couldn't have that passing of the torch. Oh, he bumped his head on the console. 
Paradise Towers, I like. I like a lot. I really like Paradise Towers. It's based on J.G. Uh, Ballard's... Uh, High Rise. High Rise. Well, we have the two gangs called the Kangs, the Red and the Blues, and the Extinct Yellows. So we see yeah. the last of them meet her. Yeah, the live. Sticky end. Pex is the kind of... He's got the best line in that season, at least. Mm. Are you bothering these two old ladies? Are these two old ladies bothering you? I love Richard Breyer's uh, as the caretaker. It's, oh, it's very over the top. It's but, totally over the top. And then the season rounds out with Dragonfire. I mean, I'm going to skip right over Delta, because that's Aww. all it deserves. Dragonfire introduces Ace, and we see the return of Glitz, yep. which yep. is a lovely thing. Dragonfire's a decent story. I think it's let down by the studio, the sets. Perhaps, yeah. Um, and we've got the infamous cliffhanger <laughs> that there is absolutely no reason for whatsoever. But say he's trying to get somewhere, get stuck. That, again, that's a script thing. You know, I think it could have been better handled. McCoy's great in this. It's like a precursor to Happiness Patrol in some ways. When he talks to the guard and yes. you see, you know, he's talking about metaphysics and so forth. Yes. And the guard suddenly turns round and sort and of comes back him. Yeah. And you are sitting there going, oh, this is just beautiful. This that is, is such a lovely a beautiful writing. Doctor Who moment. Yeah. Precursor to that amazing throw away your gun speech. Yeah. yeah. Well, that is, Happiness Patrol. That's, and that's McCoy's defining yeah. moment. McCoy always said he did not want his doctor to use violence. He wanted mm. him always to be a pacifist. Shame about the end of Remembrance, then, really. Well, he he doesn't use violence. That end of Remembrance. I'm talking about the Hand of Omega, though. That is the Ruth's backfiring gun mm. on a cosmic scale. Yeah, possibly. But no, not to take away from that. Yeah. Just a glorious. I look at that as manipulation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well that's his that. other big character trait, yeah. of course. Ace is the first modern companion. Definitely. She's the first companion with a backstory and an arc yeah. that lasts she more than is a couple of the template for New Who. Yeah. We've talked a lot about season 25 already, but season 26, the final season of Classic mm. Who, sadly, the stories yeah. really begin to take shape. Now, I actually, I think controversially as well, I prefer as a whole season 25 to 26. I think mm. Battlefield left me very, very cold. I think the old Arthurian thing felt clumsy thought the the editing was appalling that whole boom boom sequence yeah. just ugh, makes me want to tear my eyes out i would i would say battlefield i think is the one out of all of them in that season that doesn't necessarily work as well mm-hmm. i think there's certainly good elements of it here's the thing though i feel the same about curse of fenric Oh, I know. Wow. Hang me now. I, I don't, you know, I think wow. it's great on many, many levels, but I don't feel the same kind of worship for it that I think a lot you know, of people Curse do. Of Venice is one of my favourites. Yeah. I mean, I'd say behind Pyramid of Mars, I'd probably put mm. Curse of Henrik. I don't know why. I can't find it really hard to put my finger on why. Because wow. all the elements are really good. Mm. Uh, and I'm just not sure what it is that doesn't click in for me. I love the whole Ace's backstory mm. bit with the, the baby being her mum. Spoilers for Chris Fenwick. And Nahima Vores. I really can't put my finger on why. It just must be some sort of but taste I mean, thing. I know it's a bit of a cliche, that sort of circular story. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, at the time, Doctor hadn't really done anything like that before. And mm-hmm. I think handled it pretty well. I mean, Ace, Ace really... That's her story sort of, you know, starting to wrap up. Yeah. Well, it's, he, it's telling that the next episode she goes home. I don't know how deliberate that particularly was because that wasn't the shooting order but no. we get a lot of backstory in Ghostlight yeah. oh absolutely Ghostlight's my favourite yeah I think, I think that was uh, late friend Kenny Davidson's mm. favourite story because it was a sort of dense twisty turny plot mm. that took some rewatching and took some understanding oh yeah because the music was glorious because mm. the setting was glorious the acting was just glorious and ironically that was the last one they ever filmed yeah, and Ghostlight is a theatre term I believe uh, yes it's a it's, light you leave on stage so that you know and no darkness Ghostlight <laughs> went out and that was the that last was the last yeah but not last broadcast which was no. Survival which again the Master returns and we have Cheetah People and Cats and Lisa Borman who we talked about earlier. Yeah, absolutely. And of course the Master, played by Anthony Ainley, he's always entertaining but in this story, I think he did something different. This was a quieter performance and I really really like his performance in this story. There's a sense of change, there's a sense Mm. of progression in a way that there hadn't been for the Master for a long time. He was just a moustache twirling villain. Yeah. And, and he now didn't, he felt visceral. Visceral is a good word. That kind of animalistic quality. The yeah. if we fight like animals, we die like animals. I think that played out really nicely through the story. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful story for Ace. It's a really interesting story for Doctor Who because really, I would say that that is the first time we get suburbia mm. done in Doctor Who. Yes, really, true. and most definitely 
this is the template to take Doctor Who mm. forward. The line from there to Rose is, is yeah, quite absolutely. Yeah. They didn't know for a hundred percent, but they had an inkling that this might be the last story. Andrew Cartmel rushedly writes a, a final sort of line, mm. which to me is actually one of the most beautiful sort of ways to end Doctor Who. Yeah, I was so it, glad they got the chance it to do didn't, that. Obviously I was upset it was finishing, but that gave it a kind of closure that mm-hmm. if it didn't come back for a long time or if it didn't come back, at least you'd got the Doctor and Ace are still out there. Walking into the sunset. Yeah, There were plans to take the series forward. Cartmel had other plans. Apparently Ace was going to be taken to Gallifrey mm-hmm. and enrolled in the Academy to become a Time Lord. They were going to do a story where Ace is the captain of a sort of starship enterprise type right. thing. She comes back to her cabin. This is just the initial sort of pre-title or whatever. Walks into her cabin, McCoy's sitting there on the bed and she goes, Professor, we're never going to get away with this. <laughs> you know, I kind of love these little ideas. That's a very new series feeling. Yeah. Sort of, it's quite um, comic set There was also one with uh, some sort of cat burglar, you know, a sort of aristocratic cat burglar. A massive country house, dinner party, she goes in, big huge safe, opens up the safe, McCoy's sitting in there, <laughs> what kept you? you know, Pandorica meets Lady Christine de Yeah, Cesar, you it? know, there's, there's yeah. so many nice little ideas and, you yeah. know, I know that Big Finish have found a gap. Sort of gaps. Doctor Who in 1989 was beginning to find a slightly different voice, a, mm. more, a more modern voice yeah. uh, and something that did have elements of everyday life in terms of the background of the character and the settings and then that comes back in spades in the Russell T Davis era so there's definitely a strong thread through there. The Russell T Davis wrote one new adventure and it was called Damaged Goods mm. and it was set on a council estate mm-hmm. with McCoy's doctor and I think there was even a character, it's Tyler as a name, he had the ideas there anyway and that was at least I think 10 years before the series came back yeah, yeah. so it was always bubbling away what I find now is there's a lot of people who were children then that are obviously adults now and most of the love for classic Doctor Who comes from the McCoy era now mm-hmm. because that's their memory of it and yeah well that was for me I was mm. uh, what 16 in 1989 so it was mm. very much the kind of end of my childhood when Doctor Who finished um, in every way <laughs> no, <laughs> and it lived on and McCoy like Colin Baker's Doctor has had a huge further life McCoy more so through the, the new adventures mm. um, and then obviously through Big Finish mm. Gap Finders General it's the end but the moment has been prepared for Nine times out of ten. Thank you so much for listening. If you've any feedback or questions, or if your child is timeless, then we can be reached at randomizerpodcast at gmail.com. And please follow us on Twitter at randomizerpod. In both cases, that's randomizer with an S, not a Z. And then Terabang is a question mark on top of an exclamation mark. So it's something that you used to do on a typewriter, type one and then move back and do oh. the other one. And it basically expresses surprise and puzzlement. Thank you for mansplaining it. Yeah, I'll be very happy. I'll just spread my legs a bit wider as well. <laughs>